Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us at 4.07 p.m. on Sunday the 18th, 19th of um, August 2007. And this is the Sunday call-in show. I was in with uh, uh, my bum buddy, Mark Stevens, uh, on uh, his uh, radio show out of Vegas, baby, yesterday. So that's available uh, at adventurousinlegalland.com if you'd like to check that out. We had uh, interesting chats about uh, the housing bubble and uh, ooh, even a little bit about the oft-requested topic of the Fed. And uh, I want to, I'm sort of going to, uh, it's on the list to do do more on the Fed. But I want to sort of do it justice, and that's going to require quite a bit of research, and I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, it is sort of a very arcane and, and challenging topic to get straight answers on, because a lot of people who write about the Fed are insane. So I want to make sure that I get, you know, but the other stuff, the stuff that's not insane is really dull. So I'm sort of trying to work, work that part out. We'll get there. Other news of note, uh, I'm going to, um, I'm thinking of sort of depending on the level of interest um, to have a sort of a book donation for uh, On Truth, The Tyranny of Illusion, uh, my short, highly concentrated philosophical hammer blow to the core of illusions, uh, which is available at freedomainradio.com. You can search at lulu.com, and it's 19 bucks and change, a couple of bucks for shipping. Uh, you can read it in a day, but uh, I think you can spend a lifetime living it, or at least so far that's been my experience. But uh, for those who... Um, who've read it, who would like to have somebody else be able to read it, um, I'd like to set up a sort of donation thing, and anybody who would like to buy a book for someone else, I won't charge them full price for it, and we'll sort of figure out a way to get that done. So you can go to freedomainradio.com forward slash B-O-A-R-D, and you can send me um, an instant message or a private message with the address of somebody you'd like to send the book to, and uh, we'll work it out from there. So, of course, you can just buy a bunch of copies yourself. You get bulk discounts for as few as 26 copies. So if you have extended family um, that you want to completely alienate in one fell swoop, you know, I could consider this book, uh, handing out this book could be a core part of the defu process. So if you want to just get rid of everybody all at the same time, then um, that may be the way to do it. Uh, in other news, I um, have finished, as I've mentioned, finished reading The God of Atheists, and uh, so if you've uh, had a chance to listen to the audiobook, uh, feel free to let me know <laughs> what you think. And um, I'm, I've, uh, I've booked an editor to start working on it uh, in, uh, in August, and uh, I think that is going to be uh, a very interesting part of this sort of free-domain radio thing, because... Getting people to listen to the podcast is a challenge. Uh, getting people to read a book on philosophy, even a short one like On Truth. Uh, sorry, when I say short, I mean concentrated. Uh, you know, in the same way that Christina is concentrated. Um, but, um, uh, if, uh, but, but, I th- and so, but I think that getting people to read a novel is a whole lot easier than it is to get them to read something uh, like that. So I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that um, uh, that when the God of Atheists comes out, and uh, I'll be working with the editor for a little while, mostly uh, just to check for name consistencies, time frame consistencies, and of course the things which I suck at, which is catching typos. Um, so, so hopefully uh, that will be out, uh, and um, you will be able to give that to. And I'm, I'm actually not going to have anything about free domain radio 
uh, in the God of Atheists, uh, not in the title, the forward or anything. I might throw something just at the back sort of for more information or whatever. But uh, this will be a book that you could hand out to friends and family that has, in a sneaky kind of way, a lot of the philosophy that we talk about here, but in a sort of indirect, dramatic kind of way. And, uh, you know, not to pat myself on the back too hard, but um, having read the end of the book, and I haven't read this book in a while, man, I love that book. <laughs> I really do. I think it's just great. And uh, it certainly has its funny bits, but uh, I really like the, um, the manic swing between uh, tears and laughter, which, of course, is pretty much part of the lithium-fueled uh, nature of this show as a whole. So, uh, so anyway, um, that will be out, I hope, early September. Uh, I'm going to, again, self-publish since my... Uh, experiences with publishers is uh, not positive, so I'm a self-publish, and I think that will be a very interesting book for you to, get to hand to people, uh, because there's enough philosophy in it that it will open people's minds, but I think that it's well-written, dramatic enough, and I've, I found the characters very vivid. It was very vivid for me to read the characters out loud. It was kind of fun to do the acting thing again, especially the, uh, the salesman from New England. I, I had so much trouble doing his accent because I kept uh, laughing. Um, while, while I was doing it. I kept sort of breaking into laughter. I had a very, very tough time keeping a straight face with um, the New Englanders' uh, accent. But anyway, so if you get, to, of course, if you are a Gold Plus subscriber, you can get the audio book uh, just by going to the premium section of the podcast. Um, speaking of the website, uh, a, a, a brilliant listener has uh, stepped up and has um, uh, bitten off a little bit of a bullet for the site redesign. Uh, I did get a quote that was uh, a little over $5,000 to do a site redesign. Um, that's a lot of donations. <laughs> and I'd actually rather uh, spend the money on advertising. And I, I've had some compliments on the site, even as it stands. I think that if you're a highly technical person, you look at the website and you can sort of, with your practiced eye, you might be able to see some uh, stuff which would indicate that it's uh, a template sort of driven website. But uh, I'm not sure that the average person gets that. Uh, impression. But I think that I certainly have wanted to move the site beyond its current claustrophobic elevator shaft 800 by 600 um, scaling, and the template, of course, doesn't scale. And trying to get it to scale is a mess, and of course, wouldn't look very good with the top graphics. So a listener has started plowing his way in, for which I will be rewarding him with um, back rubs and uh, uh, other things which we don't really have to get into here, but which definitely will be a private YouTube account. So um, thanks very much to, to him, and uh, we'll sort of that you can see a preview of that on the board uh, if you like. He's uh, got a, a site uh, running with that, so that's great, and it's going to be a little bit less uh, cluttered, a little bit less busy. And uh, Christina actually likes it more than my website, so we're not talking at the moment, so she won't be uh, on the show because I consider this... Uh, infidelity, yeah, infidelity and betrayal really works on the um, uh, on the technical level for me far more than the sexual level because uh, I love robots. Anyway, so let's uh, let's move on with the show. I just wanted to do a very sort of brief uh, beginning part, and uh, if you could um, uh, then uh, just let me know in the chat window if you want to speak, or you just unmute yourself and, and speak. I watched. Uh, I haven't finished watching the film, and. Uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm not a huge Ryan Gosling fan because pretty much every movie he makes, he looks like he's trying not to vomit all the way through the film, and that's considered to be intense acting. But I'd heard very good things about his performance in Half Nelson, where he basically plays a communist uh, uh, teacher uh, who talks about 
the um, I'm not there's no spoilers because nothing happens in the movie. <laughs> it's impossible to spoil. Um, uh, and of course, if you've heard anything about it, you know that the uh, teacher is addicted to drugs, and that's revealed in the first few minutes of the film. But it's interesting because he says he's talking about the civil rights time of the 1960s, one of the great mythological, nonsensical watersheds, quote, watersheds in American history where liberty for our black brothers and sisters was supposed to be enforced by the government herding them into, um, not, not by setting them free of state schools, but by herding them into uh, different state schools, right? Because if you, if you move uh, cows from one field to another, uh, that's pretty much the same as setting them free. So, um, so he's talking about all of this with a uh, group of black students and he starts talking about, you know, what is the system that keeps us enslaved? You know, what are the aspects of the system that keeps us enslaved? And the kids are like, you know, uh, prisons, right? And, 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 and schools and, and whitey and so on. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's all very good. And, of course, one of the kids says, uh, but, but that's you, Teach, right? And, of course, that's a very interesting phenomenon, right? That, and he says, yeah, I'm absolutely part of the system that is keeping you down. But we're all part of the system that keeps us. He goes into this whole, like he has to blur the lines. And I thought it was a very effective, I'm sure, this is the unconscious agony of a culture that is trying to find its own wounds and is trying to heal itself. And it is horrible to watch. I mean, because it's, it really is horrible to watch. It's like, I don't know, it's like somebody who's had their leg bitten off trying to find it in the ocean, watching this, uh, these artistic kind of films, trying to identify the wounds in the culture and heal them. But you know, accidentally, and of course they would have no solution for this, right, other than some vague petific Zen collectivist hippy-dippy nonsense, but they're, you know, they're absolutely right. How on earth can a teacher teach a child about uh, criti- criticizing the state because the teacher, because the government, uh, the prisons, uh, and he said, school is like a prison, right? And he said, you guys don't want to be here, and they're all like, no, we don't want to be here, man. And of course, how can a teacher who works for the government uh, who is um, uh, participating in the system that herds these poor children into these mental brain-mashing gulags, how can he teach them anything about freedom? And this, of course, is part of the unconscious agony that is going on in the film with his drug use and so on and his alienation and so on. And, uh, you know, they're onto something, but, of course, they're onto something in a way that is just provocative but doesn't point any way towards healing or, or improving the situation. But... If you watch the film, look for that scene. I haven't watched to the end. Um, basically, it's, a, it's kind of a dull film. <laughs> I mean, nothing really happens. And uh, they weasel everything, right? So this guy obviously is a communist. He's got lots of communist books on his bookshelf. So his, uh, the woman, this woman says, are you a communist? He's like, oh, you got a copy of communist books. He's like, oh, so if I have a copy of, of uh, Mein Kampf, does that make me a Nazi, right? And uh, again, it's not really an argument or anything like that, but it's just dodging the question. But uh, it is very interesting to see just how agonized a rebel is in the system that gives him access to children only at the cost of him not being able to give them any kind of evidence of integrity, and that is very much mirrored in uh, his drug use. So, Anyway, it's an interesting film, and certainly it's well worth sitting through it just for that scene uh, to see the agony of, uh, of this, this wound that is being explored blindly and doing more to open it than to close it. But, um, of course, you can't do that with art. You can only do that with philosophy. But uh, I wish I'd had a chance to have a final script rewrite on that film. Boy, it would have been quite a different film and would, I'm sure, never have been uh, able to be uh, uh, made. The name of the movie is Half Nelson. Half Nelson. 
Uh, it's, uh, I guess, the name of a, uh, a, a wrestling move where you get somebody into the crook of your elbow. So uh, that was interesting, and I hope that you will uh, uh, get a chance to, to have a look at it. It really is. And, and the acting is very good. I mean, for I think of all of the ex-Mickey Mouse Club members, he probably is the most accomplished actor. He is. Yeah, he is actually. Uh, he, is, uh, he was with Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and Justin Timberlake and not, uh, not me. So, uh, you think he is, he's just started his own vanity band, like Keanu Reeves with Dogstar, because um, Christina's uh, very interested in, in the celebrity magazine, so sometimes we buy them for her. And yeah, he, he, uh, Ryan Gosling, uh, basically, he's, he's like a black hole of depression in every movie. I've only seen a couple of movies that he's been in, but, uh, you know, he looks like he just wants to fall into a vat of black hole tapioca and drag your soul with it. Uh, so um, uh, that's just something you have to get a little bit used to. And that's, uh, that's sort of like, you ever seen the movie The Wall with Bob Geldof? He looks like he's just on the verge of vomiting throughout the entire film, and that's called intense acting. And of course, in Ireland, that probably is. So, so it's a similar kind of acting school. Um, uh, you know, basically what they do is they put, uh, I think, a bunch of uh, diseased uh, meats with maggots in their mouth throughout most of the movie. And that, of course, gives them a burning kind of nihilistic intensity. And uh, this is, um, this is uh, art. So anyway, um, we don't have to get into that kind of method acting. Uh, that's all I really had for an introduction. Uh, I, um, uh, I've had a fun, a fun week. I don't, I don't know if anyone's got up to um, the, um, the conversations, I guess, that I sort of had on the board with regards to the uh, enslavement uh, of women and the fact that women are sort of raised to be slaves and that they trans, trans sort of trans, uh, transubstantiate trans oh I'll get the word it's coming they sublimate this into a kind of zen rising above kind of stuff and uh, I haven't actually had any any reaction to them as yet I actually um, uh, when I when I and, and it's really great to be podcasting again I'm still uh, working on this new book on ethics but it's really tough uh, so I am uh, plugging away on that but uh, uh, we shall see what uh, uh, some of the lovely ladies comes, uh, comes back on there. All right. Yeah, sorry? Yeah, Christina has listened uh, to part one, and uh, so we shall, uh, we shall see. I think, you know, it's, it's very hard to have... Um, I find this, uh, this kind of rising above it, then stuff, uh, you know, don't repay kind with kind, to be uh, annoying. Uh, it is very annoying, and um, uh, it's hard to have compassion, but... Again, having talked about it with Christina and uh, uh, and some other women, um, it's it's really hard when you're sort of raised to be the uh, social lubricant, so to speak, and to never cause a fuss and to smooth everything over and to monitor everyone's emotions and, and manage and control them. Um, why such a woman would choose to marry a hysteric like me, obviously, is is somewhat baffling. But um, I guess she's uh, she wanted to go for the Olympics of husband management, and uh, so far she's uh, oh yeah she's way ahead of the pack. Absolutely. It's sort of like watching the Boston Marathon where one person gets a jet. Uh, anyway, so um, um, I guess we can, I can sort of take on your, your, your questions now if you have any. That was sort of as much as I wanted to, uh, to start with, so uh, feel free to, uh, to pop them up. And, oh, one last thing, actually one last thing just before we start. Oh, what a tease he is. But um, the other thing that I'd sort of like to mention is that this morning I had a quick game of Unreal Tournament. 2004, and my call sign on that, if you play the game, is Free Domain Underbar Radio, uh, because uh, I am a slave to advertising. 
and oh, I, I've also spent some money on some more advertising uh, through a bunch of blogs, and also I started up Google AdWords because I'm curious to see if this sort of top 10 in the 2007 podcast awards is going to get more people to come to the site. We shall see. And uh, last but not least, thank you to the one person who has come by to put a review of On Truth, Security, Illusion at Lulu.com. If you could come by and do that, there's a link on the board, or you can go to Lulu and search for my name, write a review of the book. That might help convince people who are on the fence. So I was playing Unreal Tournament this morning, and uh, I think there was a fan on the game because um, I was playing for about 20 minutes. And of course, like any first-person shooter player... I, uh, I only got killed once, <laughs> naturally, in, the, uh, in that 20-minute time period, and um, I have the uh, text-to-speech feature enabled, and so a very proper British female voice said, ha, ha, I think I just killed Free Domain Radio, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, and I've got to think that only came from a fan. And, of course, I would have found out more, but naturally I, I didn't get killed again during the entire game period. So, uh, anyway, I just thought that was a kind of uh, fun... Uh, can you talk about working from philosophy rather than smash your head in empiricism? Uh huh. Actually, I get killed pretty <laughs> rapidly in those games. I have a, uh, I have a pretty much a kamikaze approach, uh, as I do with uh, most things in my life. So uh, I, I get uh, usually the highest points, but the most deaths uh, in these games. If you actually didn't get points, like if you got points deducted for being killed, I would absolutely end up in the negatives. But uh, in the negatives, and there'd be some sort of scientific notation after it. But uh, I'm the guy with uh, 800 mines and 12 rockets uh, always at the ready. So uh, anyway, if you, uh, you can add me as a, as a buddy in Unreal Tournament if you play it, and uh, it would be great fun uh, to... to um, because I know most of the listeners are quite young relative to me, so it would be great fun pitting my tired old Battlestar Galactica impulses uh, against some well-oiled young <laughs> neurons. So um, you can... Uh, you all beat me in something, so... All right. I'm good at sniping. Yeah, sniping uh, is... Uh, You've got to have a lot of patience for sniping and uh, pretty quick reflexes, uh, so it's quite the opposite of my, cri- <laughs> my sort of mental criteria. All right, so uh, I think I'm not hearing anything, so if you do have something, just click on the mute button uh, next to where you are, if you have muted yourself, and uh, pump away with the questions. Eh? Hi, Seth. Hello? Can you hear me? Uh, well, can anyone else hear anyone? I can't hear, um, I can't hear anything. Yeah, you can hear me, but can you hear... Oh, uh, I can't. Oh, I wonder. I haven't got my mute on. I'll just make sure. No, no mute on. Sorry. Uh, let me just... Speakers, the volume is at 100. I was hearing things earlier. You don't hear anything, right? No. My volume is up. My volume is up. Uh, I'm so sorry. I must have hit the monitor button while I was uh, doing the uh, massive engineering feats. Uh, sorry, if you have a question, please, uh, if you could re-ask it. Hello, Steph. Hi. Hi, this is Carl here. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? I'm just great, thank you. I had some uh, comments about the Fed and money, because uh, I read a very interesting book uh, recently um, called uh, by, by Jesus, actually, a book by Jesus. But, uh, no, Jesus Huerta de Soto. Uh, money, bank, credit, and economic cycles. Right, he's a Scottish and writer, isn't he? He's well, he's uh, Spanish-speaking, actually. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, Where okay. Is he, is he from South there America? you go. Is he from South America or is he from uh, I, McSpain? I think he's from Spain. Okay. And 
And I thought it, it kind of looks like a big old textbook or something. It was put out by the Mises Institute recently. It was written in Spanish in the late 90s, but it was translated recently to English. And I found it just a, it went into the history of money, the, the mutum contract, the different, the deposit, the irregular deposit contract, and all the different, you know, and showing kind of the basic understanding of what, a, what, what is a loan and what is a deposit and so forth, and the whole history of it. And it has some wonderful charts that illustrate what happens to the productive structure, how it gets distorted by the excess money and so forth. So uh, I thought that was a uh, great book, uh, much more interesting than it looks on the outside. Well, that's so. great. If you could email me the, um, the name of it, then that would be great. Uh, it's S. Well, you know, you can do it through the board or you can do it through, through the website. Then I will try okay. and pick it up. And if it does look too daunting for me, uh, also I'll, I might just email you back and interview you about the book uh, if I end up not having time to, to read it. Uh, I feel that's the okay. John Stewart approach. Like, I can't imagine that guy reads a book every day for his show. I uh -huh. think he just skims it and then asks people questions. <laughs> so that might be your role if you'd like to take that on. So, uh, but if you could send me oh. the, uh, the list, that would be great. Sure. And one, uh, I, you, I don't know if you've checked out the stuff available on Mises.org. You have the Mystery of Banking, which uh, Rothbard wrote, which you can just download for free, and that has a lot of interesting stuff in it, too. Thanks. And, I have looked uh, at some of the stuff. I've got uh, some of his stuff on audiobook. Uh, read by the guy with the really mellifluous voice that is actually pretty much like Novocaine straight to my forehead. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah. Banking and the executive sector. But, um, He's almost the Oscar, yeah. I'm sorry? Okay. No, that's nothing. That's all right. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I, have, um, uh, I, don't, I have stuff which touches on the Fed uh, in my library, but I don't have a book on the Fed. So um, maybe that would be a good thing to, to go through. Okay. Well, thanks. Did you have any other questions or comments that you wanted to bring up? Um, gosh, uh, I, here's something I, I thought of because I listened to the podcast about uh, women and so forth, and uh, and of course, uh, hmm, I'm just wondering. Uh, of course, defooing there could be di different reasons, but I'm wondering if some some cases, you know, if, if by if defooing by just leaving the family when there's uh, can, can also be an example of, of leading the battle, as it were. I mean, it's often necessary to get your own space, and all, if there's no point to the relationship, then of course there's no point to it. But uh, and, and you may need time to take off. But sometimes there are other people involved. There are, you know, other extended family members and so forth. You could possibly help. So I was just wondering if you, if you had any comments about that. Well, I think that's. I mean, that's an excellent question, of course, and uh, that is there is a very a very important fulcrum, I think, between engaging to win and beating your head against a wall. Um, can you think of examples wherein you would put it, an interaction into the latter categories? You mentioned the extended family and so on. Uh, can you th I mean, I have some myself, but this is you know, basically your, your show, so uh, can you think yeah. of, of cr criteria that might differentiate these two situations? Um, well, if you have... Um I mean, I get along pretty well with my family in general. Uh, I haven't defooed. Uh, but the, in particular, I think my involvement, and there have been times where I've been less involved, but uh, I have two nephews, and uh, so I felt very important to be a role model and involved for that reason. And uh, so that was a reason, one extra reason for me to stay involved. Right. And uh, so that, that was an example of uh, that. But I happened to be in a situation where I didn't feel the need to be who anyway, but uh, that was one, one extra reason to make more effort.
Right, right. Well, I mean, you're perfectly right in that there's, there's no such thing as, you know, defooing is the gateway to happiness, right? I mean, there's, you're just stopping. The simple act of ceasing to see people is not going to make you happy. So, and of course, if you get along well with your family, then <laughs> defooing would make about as much sense as me divorcing Christina, right? I mean, if you're uh, overjoyed in a relationship, you should definitely stay in it, and especially if you've quit your job. Um, but <laughs> uh, there are certain criteria that I could think of, which I'll get to in just a second, but you said that you wanted to be a better role model for your nephews. Uh, I would assume what you mean by that to some degree is that um, is it your, your brother or your sister is not a good role model for your nephews or not as good? Uh, well, I think that the more they have, uh, the better. Um, I think uh, it's, it's like a, having, you know, when I was growing up, I had, I had uh, various people, you know, kind of, Extended family, they weren't actually extended family, but they were friends of the family, and I had other adults to kind of look to to see, you know, what kind of behavior I might want to emulate. And it was nice to have more examples. Um, and uh, I guess I probably don't want to get into detail about the uh, uh, shortcomings of my particular family and so forth, but um, uh, well, I think there, me, were, there were qualities I... Let me just sorry. Let me just ask because I know that I don't want you to, to lead you into anything that you feel might compromise um, uh, privacy for people. But would it be fair to say that you would be friends? Is it your brother whose whose kids you're talking about? My sister. Your sister. Okay. Would it be fair to say that you would still be friends with your sister if she wasn't your sister, or would you be less likely to have a relationship with her? Well, um, I would I would be less likely probably. Uh, you know, we have uh, certain things in common, but, uh, you know, certain uh, things not in common. Now, is it, is it things like religion or statism or relativism or, like, wh where is the barrier or the divide between your value systems? I would say uh, religion, not organized religion, but religion and statism, although I'm able to speak uh, pretty openly about it, although that's been a struggle at times, but I've found... Uh, non-combative ways to, to discuss that subject openly uh, more recently. Okay, and uh, if I can just... And I'm actually bringing around, uh, I'm bringing around, uh, I think, the, the adult people as well as, you know, uh, being able to discuss it with my nephews as well. Right, right. And I, I, look, that's fantastic. To see. We, as long as people are engaged in a conversation that is in pursuit of truth, and as long as it's not just one person, you know, lecturing other people, then it's a wonderful relationship to stay in, right? And if you can salvage family relations from enlightenment, uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it, it's, 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 in, it's an incredibly great thing to do. There is a challenge, though, right? There is a challenge, and the challenge which I'm sure you're fairly aware of is, uh, you know, if you say openly, and I'm, you know, whether you do or don't is obviously up to you, and there's no particular need at, at any particular time to do it. But if you say, well, God does not exist, uh, there's no such thing as God, and the government uses violence to get what it wants, and, you know, therefore to support the government is to support uh, an evil institution, right? At some point, this is going to come to a crisis, right? How old are you? You don't have to say that. It doesn't really matter. At some point, it's going to come to a crisis, right? And at some point, your nephews are going to say to their mom, to your sister, but, you know, uncle so-and-so <laughs> says that uh, uh, the government is an evil institution and you support the government. Or uncle so-and-so says that there's no such thing as a god and you say that there is. Like, at some point, it's going to come to, to that, right, as, as, the, as your nephews get older. Right. Um, 
I think I'm probably talking to their parents at least as much about politics and the government as, as I am directly to them. Uh, so it's kind of going, I would say it's pretty well synchronized, my conversation with both generations. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, you, uh, you must have some very, very good conversational uh, and, and reasoning skills. Uh, so that, of course, speaks very well uh, about your family and your parents, of course, right? So uh, I think it's absolutely wonderful what you're doing, and uh, I certainly wish you all the best. And if you have tips uh, on how to achieve this, uh, I mean, if you have time to jot, jot them down, uh, that would be great, right, to other people who have uh, family situations that can can handle these kinds of fundamental conversations, and that does speak very well to your family as a whole, and of course to you as an individual, I'd say, you know, take my hat off to you. Well, thank you. I, uh, I, that has taken many years. I, mean, I was exposed to uh, Rand objectivism and Rothbard over 20 years ago, and I've had periods when I haven't felt I've been able to communicate with people, and periods when I haven't seen much of uh, family members, but I, I, your podcast has certainly helped me to learn to be open, and just, like, as you say, just just be yourself and see what happens and take the risk of it. It's, it's not going to work. And, and that really opened up a new possibility. Right. And if, if, um, uh, if, if family conversations do become volatile in this area, I certainly do recommend switching to dolphin speak, which uh, <laughs> will certainly distract people from what's going on at the time, although you may not want to do it when there's a lot of expensive China around. Or crystal exactly. Speech. Well, good for you. I, I wish you the best with this conversation, um, and uh, uh, it, is a, it is a great thing uh, that you're doing. I certainly do understand the... Uh, I have two nieces that uh, were part of uh, my brother's kids, and uh, that is a very challenging part uh, of the conversation. But, of course, your family sounds a lot more stable and open uh, than mine was, so, so good for you. I would say that, for me, the criteria are sort of threefold uh, that will determine whether you're running away from a battle that you should stay in, uh, or whether you are stopping beating your head against the wall. There are, there are some long-term listeners who are actually in this very chat who are still uh, doing a bit of the head against the wall thing, which is fine. I mean, good Lord. I mean, I, <laughs> I took a job in a, you know, in a, in a company not uh, nine months ago, uh, which was uh, the very much the same thing. So this is no, um, you know, no, no stone casting from an ivory tower of perfection, but... Um, the, uh, the criteria, to me, are sort of threefold, and this would be the case for any relationship, so the question of its, its, its value to you. So if we assume that there's some kind of innate value of a relationship uh, for you, then there's three criteria which will say whether or not it's uh, a conversation that's worth staying in. And um, If there's physical abuse, uh, that, of course, is a complete and total and utter and complete deal-breaker, right? There is, no, uh, there is no possible productive relationship that could ever involve uh, physical abuse. If there is verbal abuse, that is a complete, utter, and total bre- uh, deal-breaker. And what I mean by that is not somebody muttering occasionally, oh, don't be such a jerk, right? That's not exactly the, quite the same as verbal abuse. Verbal abuse is uh, anybody who questions your absolute loyalty and devotion, both financial, emotional, and perhaps sexual, to Free Domain Radio. That is really the sine qua non of, uh, of verbal abuse. But, I mean, if, if somebody sort of regularly puts you down or, or scorns you or rolls your eyes or, or calls you names or whatever then uh, clearly uh, this is not someone that you can stay in a productive debate with. And the third criteria is, and we can see this, uh, a woman is is courageously confronting her mother and is telling us about it on the boards. And uh, the conversation that I had with a listener uh, recently called uh, The Velvet Mirror. If you're just not listened to, that is another... um, that is another kind of relationship where you simply cannot have a productive and forward-moving uh, discussion with anyone. 
And so if you can, if those things aren't present, if you're not beating each other up, if you're not getting yelled at and put down, um, and if you're actually being listened to, and being listened to doesn't mean that people always agree with you. Lord, I know that one. <laughs> but it does mean that they respect your thoughts and thinking and that you have a criteria for resolving disputes that does not involve um, being ignored or being put down or being physically aggressed against. Uh, it can take a long time to change people's minds, as you know. It certainly did for me. And right. um, we should be patient with that, but there does have to be a willingness of people to stay in the conversation. right? So, you know, militarily, if you sort of take the analogy of a sword fight, right, then the, the sort of physical abuse side is, you know, you're taking out your sword and somebody drops an H-bomb, right? <laughs> you can't win that right. battle. I would run away too. Um, uh, the second one is, um, is uh, where they, where they uh, use verbal abuse. It's like you pull out your sword and they just open up a trap door and you fall, you know, under some poison spikes or something. And the third one that I would analogize in terms of not being listened to is that um, everybody else runs off the battlefield and you're just swinging your sword completely alone, well, that's kind of ridiculous, right? So that would be a case wherein I would regretfully sheath my sword and leave the battlefield myself, right? So if nobody's responding to you or they put you down or reject you, then you're fighting alone and nobody's actually on the field with you, so there's no, not much point staying. But if somebody also brings out a sword and you're enjoying the thrust and the parry and so on and it's a safe, you know, fencing environment or whatever, then I would say absolutely. It's absolutely essential to stay in the conversation um, because... Uh, uh, that is, uh, uh, there's real joy in discussing those kinds of fundamental issues with people, although it can be scary at times, of course. Does that I sort of make sense? What, yes, I think one thing the, uh, the, that I used to join in the escalation of a battle in terms of trying to win the argument rather than trying to get to the truth. Of course, the truth is scary enough, volatile enough, but I found that by de-escalating, and uh, this won't work with everybody, but uh, that by de-escalating and sticking to... Uh, the discussion, and rather than trying to win the argument and dominate, you know, right. that the urge to dominate, that that really, that that, that elicited over time this, the, the same behavior from the other side. That happened to work in my case. Right, uh, and right. And that was very important. No, that, that's an absolutely essential insight that you got there, that when you try to beat other people to win, uh, that reflects a situation when you're growing up or situations that you've had in your dating or social life which is not centered around win-win, right? The whole point of an intellectual debate is that both people come away with something, right? Something more than they went into, right? That's a win-win, right? We all know this from economics, that every voluntary transaction is a win-win, right? If you buy a pen for right. five bucks, you want, five, you want the pen more than five bucks, the other guy wants five bucks more than a pen, you both walk away with something more. And if you, desire, if you have a desire to dominate other people and to win and, and to erase them and sort of get them to conform to your way of thinking, that's because there's not as much experience in the win-win negotiation. And, uh, of course, the win-win, though, requires uh, a, a shared methodology and a shared respect. So if I start debating with somebody about the welfare state, I have to assume, if I'm going to debate with them, I have to assume that they care about the poor and they want the poor to have better lives. Right? So someone starts talking about foreign aid, I've got to assume that they want the people starving in Africa to have a better life, right? I assume that they're not like, you know, Tony Snow apologizing for the empire or something, right? Because then I won't debate with them because they're malevolent, right? And so finding things in common, right? I mean, when people say, uh, oh, you want no government, and they think that that means that I want to, you know, I don't know, push old ladies in front of buses or something, then we have to say, well, you know, we both want less violence in the world. I mean, who wouldn't be happy with less violence in the world? We'd, all, we'd both love to see an end to war. 
we'd both love to see more opportunities for poor people to get out of poverty. We'd love to see kids getting better educations. We'd love to see the price of health care come down. But you have to assume all of these things, right? And, um, you know, like two scientists both want to discover the truth about the universe. They may disagree. They have a common methodology called the scientific method. But you have to assume that the person you're debating with is benevolent and wants the best. And they just maybe have a mistaken way based on being over-propagandized about... Like an environmentalist, we have to assume that an environmentalist wants a healthier planet for the longevity of, of life, right? And, and they just think that the government will provide that, right? That's, that's the mistake, but you have to assume that they want that, right? Right. And you may not convince somebody right away, but I think the, the desire sometimes is to, is to convince people on the first pass, but as long as they're willing to listen and, and, uh, and discuss things rationally, uh, you know, you, you can accept that uh, it may take quite a while to convince them. Well, it's actually a, um, it's not a good sign if you convince them right away. Right, it's too bad. Because it means that they're just conforming to you because of some hang-up, and it just means that then, you know, the next guy who comes along will get their allegiance, right? So you definitely, um, you want it to be a spirited battle, right, with, with a win-win outcome. Uh, and people who, who sort of agree, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm an anarchist now, too, right? Well, the next guy who comes, oh, now I'm a democratic socialist, right? So you absolutely <laughs> want them to fight for what they believe in so that when they do change their minds, that you know it's something that will stick. Right. Okay, that's all I have for now. Well, thank you. Uh, again, uh, excellent topics to bring up. I certainly do appreciate that, and uh, I look forward to if you could just re recall that into the name of the book and send it to me. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, I'll do that. Thanks so much. Great to, great to chat thank with you. Thank you. All right. Now serving, bing, number 23. Number 23 with the deli roast sandwich, number 23. Uh, anybody else who wants to chat can just say so. <laughs> I'm trying to make Christina laugh so that she's painting her toenails so that she actually ends up. And she's actually got, it's very nice because I have some fairly decent sized orangutan toes. She's actually got a paint roller to do my toenails next with a smartly kind of pink because I don't actually have a job anymore. So it doesn't really matter. You should see all the piercings I've got. All right. So, I'm sorry? And the mascara. Absolutely. Rod. Ruddy. What's up, dude? Hey, how's it going? Pretty well. Yeah, my, my question was just I wanted to know what uh, shade Christina was using on her toes so I could uh, get some of that. Uh, hang on, let's, uh, let's get it straight from the... And one of the listeners has asked if I do have a perm. Yes, but it's neither on my head nor in my armpit. So um, <laughs> let's just say I'm doing boxers at the moment. Okay, so my uh, my the less important friend. question. <laughs> Sorry, <go on. laughs> my less important question than the uh, the toenail color was. Um, I was wondering earlier if you could talk a little bit about the um, the difference between um, working from um, kind of well, let's see, well well thought out philosophy versus continuously bashing your head against the empirical. Uh, test over and over again, and uh, the reason that I brought this up is that um, Greg Greg's been mentioning some things online or on the uh, the boards lately about this, but it's also been popping into my head a, a little bit. Uh, we briefly went back and forth a couple of posts on this, where I think uh, yeah, I think Greg had said that that or he had mentioned something about 
me having, you know, kind of bashed my head against the wall until I realized that my family wasn't going to come around to it. But I think he had a mistaken impression of me, actually. I had one phone call with my mom, one phone call with my brother, and didn't even bother talking to my dad about any of this stuff, and I just stopped talking to them. And um, I know a lot of it has to do with, uh, oh, yeah, Greg says he was talking about himself. Okay, maybe I just misunderstood. He but, often um, calls himself Rod from time to time, or Great Rod, <laughs> or Big Rod. I don't know what that means. Yeah, you know what's funny? I found out what Rodzilla means in street slang, and I, it's not even, oh, man, it's dirty. So I what, thought okay, that was what kind does of it fun. mean? Does, did, did, what does it mean? Does it mean that your in man's member is both scaly and fire breathing? Because that's pretty cool. I mean, you can it's make a point out of that. I think, it, I think the word colossal came up in there, but anyway, it was... Um, it's not right for a family show. But anyway, that's that's a complete <laughs> tangent. Um, <laughs> no, but I, what I was saying, though, is that um, I believe that I was, when it came time for me to do the whole defooing thing, I pretty much figured it out before I even talked to them what was going to happen. I just kind of, the phone call with my mom just confirmed it, and the one with my brother also did, even though that one was a lot more painful because... I was still holding out a little bit of hope that maybe, you know, he, since he was in the same, much of the same boat that I was, that he might uh, might understand it. But, you know, it didn't work with him either, so I had to drop that one. And, of course, my, my dad's just completely off the deep end religiously now, so I'm just not even going to bother with that. But uh, every now and then I think because I took an empirical shortcut, even though I used, uh, I think, pretty sound reasoning in it, I wonder if that might bring doubt into my mind sometimes about this stuff, especially when I hear things about my mom threatening to come out here and talk to me face-to-face -face and it freaks me out and everything. I don't know. So do, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, sure, I think I can, out of that ramble, I think I can pick out some useful stuff. Yeah, that was a pretty good roundabout. No, I mean, I, I certainly ask that of my listeners many times a day, so I'm not going to complain about it. Like, somewhere in between him talking about his hairdo, his toenail, and his fire-breathing penis, there was some useful stuff. So, uh, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, this is, and certainly, Greg, uh, feel free to join in on this as well, but, you know, Greg talking about his conversation with his brother, which left him feeling depressed. Um, and his brother is somebody who works for the government, for the uh, army, and, and has spent time in Afghanistan and so on. Well, philosophy, of course, as a discipline, will give you uh, a very clear understanding of where this conversation is going to go. Right? There's, there's no doubt you know, where this conversation is going to go. Right? I mean, if you start arguing, uh, let's say if my brother was, I don't know, in the SAS or something, or the Special Air Service or whatever it is, some crazy ninja gang of murderers or whatever, uh, where would the conversation go? If I sit down with my father, who is, you know, entering his St. John the Baptist lives in my head religious phase, what would the result of the conversation be? Well, philosophy will be very clear about what the result of the conversation will be. And if you sit down and talk with someone who has ignored you your whole life or whatever, uh, or who is mystical, or who is patriotic, or who is whatever, whatever. Philosophy, uh, when you get immersed in it, will tell you, and, and psychology as well, but we'll put that under the umbrella of philosophy, uh, will tell you where that conversation is going to go with extraordinary 
uh, accuracy, right? Near, uh, near, near psychic uh, accuracy where that is going to go. If I sat down to have a conversation with my mom, if we sat down with Christina's parents to have a conversation, we would know exactly where that conversation was going to go. People's personalities, particularly as they get older, and particularly when they have children, people's personalities become more predictable than quantum mechanics, become more predictable than gravity, become more predictable than, you know, open your eyes, stand under the sun, and see. Uh, and so uh, there is a, a hardening or a calcification that occurs with people as they get older, and particularly after they've had children, uh, because, and, and it's natural, right? Because they, they have more invested in their worldview, right? That's why uh, it's important to talk to younger people, right? Uh, Free Domain Radio, the other slogan is, we like them young, but I'm not sure that I'm going to go with that one. But uh, there's a certain kind of truth in it, right? As the guy says, I think it was uh, some crazy-ass Jesuit nut job who said, you know, give me a man when he's, uh, give me a boy until the age of seven and he's mine for life. And that, of course, is the Catholic philosophy as well. It's also something which you could call the waiting for the bus syndrome, right? The longer you wait for a bus, the less likely you are to walk. And so when people, as they get older, they have more and more invested in a particular worldview, right? So um, Greg's brother, if I remember rightly, has been working for uh, the Defense Department for quite some time. That's his career. That's his job. That's his pension. That's his stability. That's his security. That's his world. And he has two kids, right? And he's also teaching them about the world and about life and about uh, patriotism and about God and about uh, the the military. I'm sorry? Uh, One kid. One kid. One kid. Okay. Um, and so, but, you know, he's probably going to have more, right? But even if he doesn't, right, it's just, that's all, that's all it takes, right? So if we look at someone like my father, who is now, you know, entering into his third or fourth decade as a, uh, a Christian and is really uh, heavily invested, well, the guy's like, uh, what, 72 or 73 years old? Is he going to say, gee, since I was 35 or 40, I have been really, I've been going to church, I've been praying, I've been this, I've been that. I've raised my daughter, uh, my half-sister, to be uh, religious and and this and that, right? Is he going to say, okay, I'm backing off this thing now. I'm probably only a couple of years from dying. Maybe he'll live to be 80 or 85 or whatever. But is he really going to throw in the towel now? Well, no, he's not. Right, because he's right at the, the, the hump, at the peak of Pascal's wager, right? He's invested a heck of a lot into being religious. And uh, if it turns out that he's right, then giving, it up on, giving up on it now would be ridiculous. Like, it would be completely illogical, because then he's going to go to hell, or at least not go to heaven, or whatever. And if he's wrong, what does he gain? Well, he gets to look back over the last 40 years of his life and say, well, that was kind of stupid, wasn't it? He's going to have to, because uh, he's a compulsive letter writer, which email has only turned into an <coughs> outright addiction. And so all the people that he's tried to convert to, to uh, Anglicanism, uh, how's he going to deal with that? He's going to have to say, oh, sorry for pestering you all these you know, years and years and years. He's going to have to undo the programming uh, that he inflicted on his kid uh, when he sent her to Sunday school and so on. Uh, you know, this... this, this you know, barring him getting hit by lightning or something and his brain being completely reorganized, there's no possible situation under which he is going to reverse his position. Greg's brother, is he going to quit his job? Is he going to retrain? Is he go- I mean, we all know how hard it is to change even when you're not hugely invested in the system. 
I found it unbelievably difficult to change. And I didn't have any kids, and I, didn't, I wasn't married. And I had savings that allowed me to take time off from my career. Right? If you're working for the government paycheck to paycheck, and you've got kids, and you've got bills, and you've got debts, are you going to quit your job? And if you're not going to quit your job, what is enlightenment going to do but torture you? Right? So that's what I mean by sort of looking at the evidence, looking at the psychology, looking at the reality that we know of how addicted people are to self-justification and how incredibly painful it is to reverse those self-justifications, particularly as you get older, and almost insanely after you've inflicted them on children. So that's sort of what I mean by when you sit down to have a conversation with someone, then you need to understand where the disease is in them, right? Where the disease of mythology is in them, right? So if I'm a doctor and I sit down with someone who's, you know, got type 4 cancer and is like three weeks from dying, I'm not going to sit down and, with them and say, you know, I hope that within a month I'm going to have you climbing Mount Everest, right? You're sitting down <laughs> to break the news to them, right? To say, uh, sorry, you're not going to make it, right? And you don't, you don't sit there and say, gee, I'm a bad doctor because I can't save this person. You have to recognize where the disease is, where the illness is in the person, the illness of mysticism, of rationalism, of patriotism, of religion, of, of, of um, mythology as a whole. Where, where are they? To what degree are they in the grip of this disease? What are the positive reinforcements they are getting? Right? People pay you well to lie. People pay you well to lie to yourself, most first and foremost. And so where are they in this? What are the costs and benefits to this person? And once you recognize and accept that, you can still have the conversations, but you're, you're having the conversations knowing that this is a terminal situation. Now, it's certainly true, I guess, that somebody who's got incredible stage 4 advanced cancer could spontaneously go into remission and live another 40 years. But as a doctor, you know that the odds of that are completely and totally minuscule. You would never even mention that possibility because it, maybe it would happen once in every three careers. It's possible, but you don't go in with that expectation, right? So if you're going to sit down and have a conversation with somebody who's in this kind of situation, your parents, your siblings, or whoever, you recognize that this is a farewell concert, right? That there's not going to be any possibility of them hearing, understanding, and acting on what it is that you're saying, on the truth being curious about it, accepting it. The best you're going to get is some sort of Weasley, uh, as, as Greg mentioned with his brother, well, I guess we both have our own perspectives and our, our own perspectives make sense in their own way and blah, blah, blah. Right? Which is even worse than just calling you an asshole, right? <laughs> saying we're both assholes, right, in our own way. So uh, that's what I mean by looking at things proactively, right? Once you understand philosophy, once you understand how this stuff all works, going in with a full understanding of what it is that you're facing and accepting the minuscule possibility and, and, and rejecting it as a, a viable possibility, right? So if you go in and the conversation doesn't work out and you get depressed, it's because you didn't go in with realistic expectations, right? Like if I go in uh, thinking I'm Jesus and I can heal people who have stage four, 4 cancer and they keep dying, I'm going to feel depressed because it's like, what, what's wrong with my healing power? I should be healing these people. Something's wrong. And uh, it's just not possible, right? Well, uh, the question, though, is, uh, I mean, especially after this length of time, um, and, and after the fact, I did kind of uh, reason out that 
it was kind of pointless to expect anything out of it because, um, I mean, he pretty much is heavily invested in the idea of power. And there's no escaping that for him. But the question is, after after this length of time and after after having been down that road four or five times already in the past, why wouldn't I have gone in um, with much lower expectations than I had? Well, what were your expectations, like looking on it in hindsight? Well, I was kind of not so much expecting but hoping that it would work out the way it did with John where I mean, there would at least be a, a an open door there where you know he kind of understood what I was talking about and actually thought about it and and over time has been kind of internalizing it himself and and coming around to understanding all of this and with, with Chris it was different but I thought it would be kind of like that experience, or at least I, I hoped it would be like that experience. Um, but with Chris, it was like it was like everyone else that, that I was looked at as just sort of a a, a challenger to be bested. Right? You know, uh, every topic brought up or every question asked was was meant to be vanquished, right? Rather than considered or 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 um, um, actually discussed or, or, or thought about in any real way. All right. And um, what are the salient differences between Chris and our good friend Captain Beeble? Uh, salient differences? Yeah, that would have an effect on their receptivity towards this kind of conversation. Oh, you mean like in terms of like their material circumstances? Yeah, let's start with that for sure. Okay, so, um, well, uh, John is single, of course, and and uh, uh, has no kids, and um, he's just starting his career and not really established yet. But uh, and he was living with uh, you when you began this conversation. Yeah, and that's right. true. So he too. had to listen to you because you were the landlord. Just kidding. <laughs> when You're you come to visit us up here, the word but is not allowed. That's the only thing I'm going to have as a landlord, but that's, that's, that's different. <laughs> right, but I'll switch to German. Well, also, <laughs> right. But uh, there's, there's other things which are relevant too, right? I mean, which is that, uh, I mean, you say he's just starting out in his career, but his career has nothing to do with the government, right? Well, uh, in in a way, it does. I mean, uh, he's he's in the fine arts, so um, he has to vie for patronage, just like every other um, classical musician does. Well, sure, but I mean, right, he's so. not. I mean, that's that's like that's like student loans or whatever, right? I mean, his his goal right. would be to not have to deal with that and 
he's not sort of propping up the empire and he's not, you know, handing weapons to the troops or, I mean, not saying that your other brother is, but he's not, not, not voluntarily, into, this is a necessary evil for his profession, right? Because taxation is so high that private patronage has diminished, right? And, and so right. So this is just something you, it's like, this is like using the roads as far as I'm concerned. So it's, it's quite different. It's not something that he would seek out. It's just something that has to be done, right? Right. It's not a state job as such. It's, it's, a, it's a career in which the state has monopolized um, our, our access to it. Right. That's like saying, well, I have to use the government-invented Internet to do a podcast, therefore I support the state. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just something that you right. have to, to, to live with, right? Right, right, right. And I mean, and I, I read, uh, and this would be, I guess, about eight or nine, maybe a year ago, I read Chris's report, uh, which was available online. And I mean, he's, he's really in there, right? Like, I mean, he's absolutely using all of his skills and talents uh, to, to support the beast, right? Oh, yeah. He's, it's interesting, too, because when he, when he had the opportunity to make that decision after the Army, um, I had some long conversations with him back then about it and kept encouraging uh, the private sector and it was even then, even back then, he was already, I could tell his mind was already made up. Well, sure, and we, we know something about the psychology of people who choose the, I mean, again, in the abs, when, when there are options or opportunities, we know something about the psychology of people who will choose a public sector position over a private sector position, right? Sure, sure. I mean, there's a deep emptiness, right? So they have to merge with a fictional collective because they, they, there's a deep emptiness in their personalities and there's a deep insecurity about their abilities, right? Because you, they don't want to compete and duke it out in the private sector. They uh, really want to, uh, uh, to get into a secure position and so on. And there's a deep insecurity and... Uh, it's like it's like the people who favor arranged marriages, right? I don't think that would be Brad Pitt, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not who would be in favor of arranged marriages. Uh, it would be people who maybe weren't uh, as willing to try and make themselves appealing to 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 marriage partners and so on, right? That's that's actually kind of ironic that you bring that up as a metaphor because uh, one of his best friends is. Uh, the, the, in an arranged marriage and is a huge supporter of arranged marriages. <laughs> right, and that would make sense because it's very much is, but where you want coercion or bullying to create your relationships, it's because you don't believe that you would be able to earn those relationships in the free market, so to speak, right? Both in terms of... Um, sorry, somebody's just pinged me. Can you just tell him that we're on the show? He can join us if he wants. It's Gizmo Project and... So, um, yeah, so, I mean, where, where people eschew voluntarism, it's because they, they're deeply empty and insecure people. And asking him to confront that in himself, uh, I just, I can't even imagine how, how that could be conceivably achieved. Right. There's, there's no one, sorry, there's no one to talk to in your brother, right? I mean, he's just inhabited by empty mythology and conformity. And he's aggressive about it both implicitly and explicitly. So yeah, there's, there's yeah, no one to talk to. There's no, you're, you're shouting down a well, right? You're trying to wrestle with a ghost. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty true. But, but, the, the, but, what, but what I... I don't know why, though. Why... Why... 
why did I think that there was still something there worth pursuing? Well, it's because you don't believe, and again, this is no, I'm just, I'm going to be, like, I'm going to sound like a jerk here, even more so than, than usual. Um, <laughs> right, no, and, and uh, I, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm only doing this because, you know, it, it's, it's sort of to be, to be blunt with you, though I'm absolutely, I mean, not, not, not nine months ago I was in the same position of like, hey, I can join this company full of statists and religious people and have a great time. So, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I'm right there with this. But, but sort of to, to put it bluntly, it's because you don't trust philosophy, right? So you have, you have these two Gregs, and, and the fact that we've got it down to two is great. But we have these two Gregs, right? Because what is it? Critical, self-critical Greg now sleeps with the fishes. So we, we get it down to two Gregs, right? So there's the Greg <laughs> who lives in this platonic world of philosophy, right, and manipulates concepts in a free-floating, otherworldly, new amenal platonic realm, right, and loves it, right, he's on the board and, and, and loves talking philosophy and loves reading and loves writing, right, and then right. there's the real world, right, where you, you, you can't bring these concepts to bear directly in the real world. You don't trust that gossamer thread that goes from the platonic world to the real world. And you have to sort of like, okay, uh, platonic Greg, I have to go to real world, I have to go to the real world, so I have to leave you here in the playroom of philosophy and I'm going to give you some blocks and some podcasts and so on, right? But I'm going to have to just leave you aside because here I have to go into the real world. And I can't have you in here because what you think about doesn't really apply to the real world. Well, if if that were really the case, though, then um, then then I mean, what have I been up to the last twelve, fourteen months? Well, you have been living in isolation to a large degree in this platonic world which is a mirror of the real world and I mean it's valuable and it's valid and so on, right? But the, the great challenge is to bring the world of philosophy directly to bear into the real world of interaction and especially in interactions with people who are blind, right? Who are blind, who have no boundaries, who are highly infectious, right? Your brother Chris, his personality is highly infectious, right? Because he is so blind to his own falsehoods that he's infectious, right? So it's his depression that you're feeling, and it's his emptiness that you walk away coated in, right? It's, it's the horror and the emptiness of living in this life of mythology that you walk away feeling, thinking it's yours. It's not yours. It's his feeling, right? Because when people are incredibly unconscious, they're highly infectious in terms of their emotional states. And so it's not that you, I mean, you've been building this fantastic framework of philosophy and you are bringing it to bear in your life, right? So the decisions that you've made over the past 12 to 18 months vis-a-vis -vis your life, I think, have been great and sensible and healthy and wonderful. But it's very hard to maintain this world of philosophy when we are in the presence of somebody who is utterly committed to falsehood, to mythology, and doesn't know it, right? Thinks that 
this world of mythology that they live in is the real world and has no conscious doubt about any of that, right? Because all that doubt and all that depression and all that emptiness then springs off to everyone else. Uh, sorry, if you've just joined us, if you could click on the mute button uh, just to the right of the screen just because we can hear you typing uh, and it's uh, like jungle room uh, in my brain. So, um, so, I mean, it's not that you've been doing, but, but it's bringing this world of philosophy, this delicate house of cards that we build in isolation, it's bringing this into the real world and having it still stand is, is really hard. I mean, it really is the final challenge of what it is that we're doing. Hey, can I jump in and say something real quick like that? All right. Yes, is that okay with you, Greg? It's, it's about this, uh, the subject that you're on right now. And uh, I was just thinking about how, how different it is for me to have conversations with, with guys on the, on the boards, or if I do the uh, the live chats with uh, Greg or or Brian Heller, one of those guys, and how easy and free and open the conversation is, and how enjoyable it is. And then when I have a conversation with you know an acquaintance or somebody who who um, just doesn't get this stuff, who doesn't really understand this philosophy. The conversations, as long as they're, you know, as long as they're not just um, how's the weather type crap, but if it's something meaningful, the conversation becomes very. It's like it's it's like carrying a weight or something like that. It's sure. it's very difficult and it's very um, it's not enjoyable at all. So, I'm starting to really become conscious of these these little subtle differences now. I mean, they're they're turning these subtle differences into just huge boulders in the room. Oh, somebody's on an old school typewriter. Yeah, sorry. If you could just, if you've just joined, if you could click the mute button so we know who you're typing. Well, I completely agree with you with, with one minor caveat that's actually not too minor, which is you say that people don't understand this philosophy. But uh, I would completely disagree with you on that. I think that everyone absolutely, completely, and totally understands this philosophy because uh, yeah. they know exactly what to oppose unconsciously. Right. Right. Of course. And that's the the weight that you feel is the weight of their defenses. Because they get the truth. Right? When you say to somebody, you know, violence is bad. Yes, violence is bad. You know, if you don't pay your taxes, the government uses violence against you. They get it. They get it immediately. They get it completely. They get it totally. Yeah, so the, the, weight, Sorry, go ahead. the uh, weight that I'm feeling isn't me trying to lift them up. It's actually them pushing me down. That's, that's a very important difference. Well, I would, again, just, just to be annoyingly precise, I, I, th I think it's precise, I would uh, amend that to say that it's them pushing themselves down. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of like uh, when you're trying to pick up a little kid and they go all limp and suddenly they become like five times as heavy as they once were. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But it's, it's, them, it's them rejecting the truth in themselves, right? It's their false, like, <laughs> this is, again, this sounds mythological and I apologize for that, but... Um, when you speak the truth to someone and you speak it directly and having done this for a while and seen the rather explosive reactions that regularly hit my inbox and the board sometimes, uh, when you speak the truth to someone, you cut right through their defenses because they're not expecting it, right? They're just expecting you to have some preformed opinion, right? Like, so if you talk to a Democrat and they find out you're a Republican or something, they, they don't mind the difference because it's like, eh, I know where this person's coming from. I have all the labels and I know where they fit in the mythology and so on. When you speak in a philosophical, i.e. an anti-mythological voice, 
what happens is you cut right through their false self and you hit their true self, which is lying there in wait for any sign of life beyond the false self. And then what happens is the false self, you know, snap, <laughs> must kill, right? It's like um, the, the, the metaphor, to, to use a metaphor that is, you know, quite appropriate to my level of non-geekiness, uh, at the end of Lord of the Rings, right? Suddenly Sauron uh, goes like, there's, the ring is at Mount Doom, right? And, and all of his Nazgul come flying back to Mount Doom, right? Because it's like, oh my God, the, the hobbits, the, 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 they've gone right to Mount Doom and I've got to withdraw all of my forces from fighting the outside army of, of Aragon and I've got, to, I've got to have them fly to Mount Doom to, to protect the ring, right? The, the, the true self or, or whatever, right? So when you speak the truth to someone, you reach through to their true self and their true self rises up. And it's like, thank God somebody's finally thrown a rope over the wall. Right? And they, they charge towards the rope and they want to get out. They want to get to the world. They want to get out of the prison that they're in, the prison of the false self. And the weight that you feel is the person not attacking you. you mean, you're just a catalyst. They're attacking themselves to crush uh, the false self, uh, the true self, right? Because whenever the true self was released before, they got maimed by their parents or by their teachers or whatever, right? So the false self is just a, it's a bear trap grown to the size of the planet, right? And there aren't even any bears around anymore. So Bye. That's, uh, that's, I just wanted to sort of mention, mention that. I have to agree with you that uh, he definitely already he he already knows all this stuff because it, it definitely there was definitely a sense that I mean he didn't consciously know but uh, it felt like he already knew what I was going to ask him mm-hmm. before I asked it you know like 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 he was just picking through a a toolbox of of rationalizations for for questions he'd already asked himself. Right. We're we're not speaking Mandarin to people. We're speaking a language they already know completely and totally and deeply. It was like putting it was like putting a quarter into a, a record machine almost. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, people, people, and, and moms are particularly good at this as far as that sort of elephant sitting on your chest kind of guilt thing, right? Because, you know, they're just like, we know exactly, oh, that's okay, I don't mind, just just call me once in a while to just let me know that you're okay, I don't ask for much, uh, I can't breathe, right, I mean, that's, that's, that's what, they know the phrases to use, they, and I, you know, it is, my, it is my complete inability to recognize these phrases, you know, it's completely bizarre, because in The God of Atheists, I was noticing that people are wielding these phrases with quite a good deal of adroitness, but I myself have never been able to bring these phrases to bear in conversation, right? These sort of, the phrases that just wound or asphyxiate or, you know, undermine or leave people feeling just, you know, whatever, terrible. And, uh, and that's what people do. But, but you're not part of the equation, right? I mean, Chris was entirely involved in self-management, not a debate with you. Right, yeah. That's, that's the sense that I got, Definitely. Sorry to laugh. Somebody just wrote, ah, oh, mom, run. How did she figure out gizmo? There's nowhere to hide. <laughs> Sorry. I will stop trying to imitate people's moms um, because it does really freak them out. <laughs> so, and, uh, I will uh, definitely not, uh, not do that quite as much. Sorry. <laughs>
Is that you, dearie? I will do it with grandmoms, though. <laughs> <All right. laughs> but yeah, it's not uh, right. So, so you, um, uh, you know, when you're when you're in, engaged in the conversation with Chris, right? He has no access to the real world. He has no access. I mean, the only way that he knows that the truth shows up is he feels incredibly anxious and aggressed against. Right? And, and you haven't, there's no part, there's no one in, like, you can't get through the false self to talk to him. And, and you know that because of his life's choices. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I guess maybe uh, I just thought that uh, there was a slightly better chance. Um, right, and so you, you are now summoning the dream crusher, right, which is my, which is my uh, second job, um, because there is no chance, right, there is no chance. Right. There's no chance. And there's right. no and I, uh, Sorry, go ahead. And after, after the conversation, afterwards, I knew that. No, you knew I that just, before. I... You knew that before. Okay, well, what if I put it this way? I I knew it before, I knew it after, but hmm. Maybe I was kind of ignoring it before. Um uh, I can tell you what I think was going on if you like and then you can tell me that um it's right but um who is it who needs you? To deal with him, <laughs> it's too, too simple a question, but the question is important. Who is it who needs you to deal with him as if he has hope? Who is it? Who is it him. Like when you when you sit down and talk with, or when you even think about talking with Chris, right? Who is mm-hmm. it who benefits from thinking that Chris has hope? Is it you? Well, I would think that we both would. Well, you went in thinking that Chris had hope, and you came out feeling depressed. Yeah. So oh, I, I see. think that empirically, it's not to your benefit to think that, right? I see. Yeah, that's that's. Well, sure. If if the if the truth is that he doesn't, which he doesn't, right? Because then I just kind of carry around this um, torch, um, and he gets to use me in that right. way. Let, let's take a more extreme example, and it may not even be a more extreme example, but, but it would be a clearer example. Let's say, Chris, you're in 1937 or whatever, and Chris is in the Nazi party, right? Who is going to okay. benefit from thinking that you can be in the Nazi party and be a good person? <laughs> yeah, the Nazis, of course. Of course, right? Of course. Right? So the, the, the reason why it's so dangerous to be around these highly unconscious people is that it's not even your hope. It's his hope that you were acting out. You knew the truth, but he wanted the fantasy that he could be a Nazi and be a good person. 
So uh, I just imposed it upon myself. No, he imposed it upon you because you're used to reading what people want and providing it to them because that's how you were raised. That's how most of us are raised. <laughs> and that's how I earned an income for the last 15 years. So. And you're well paid for it, right? So absolutely. <laughs> sure, sure. That makes sense. Right? What is it that people want that's going to keep me out of trouble? What do I have to say? Well, I have to, I have to raise a toast to my parents on their anniversary because if I don't, holy Christ, am I going to get screwed around with Right? I, I have to smile and, and I have to do this and I, and, I, right? and I have to figure out what people want and I have to provide it to them. And if I don't do that, then I'm going to get really screwed up. I'm going to get attacked. I'm going to get bullied. I'm going to get beaten. I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to get humiliated and whatever, right? So we're just used to that, right? Well, what is it that people want that's going to make them feel better? Okay, I'm going to slip into that and do that for them, right? That's what slaves do, right? What is it that's going to make right. the master not beat me? That's what I'm going to do, right? So we're, we have this radar at all times. What is it that people want from me that is going to make them not attack me? Right. Right, right. That's exactly right. Right. And so that's what so I mean then, when I... Sorry, go ahead. So then this conversation that I had was really more like me just trying to re-engineer the, the demand matrix... No, you were there as a drug for him, which is why you felt depressed and empty afterwards, because you'd been used. You were there so, so that he could be in the Nazi party and still feel that he was a good guy and a nice guy, and, a, that, that, and that he was worthy of debating, and that there was a possibility of a debate in this area. So, well, what you're suggesting is that that I had no part in the motivation whatsoever. No, you were, you were trained to provide people justifications for their existence. Right? That's what all too many of us are programmed to do. People always need justifications. They need to feel that they're in the right. They need to feel that they're strong. They need to feel that they're good. They don't want to actually do the work of being good. Right? Most of us are raised as um, ego donors. Right? So the same way that if you're an alcoholic, you might have kids so that you can take part of their liver when they get older and know that, they, you know, that they, they're going to be a good match. And so what we're, you know, our parents make really bad decisions about ethics and, and, and religion and patriotism and virtue, and they inflict all of those bad decisions on us. And what they do is they um, are, their conscience festers, right? I mean, your, your brother is miserable deep down. We know this. You can't be part of an incredibly brutal and corrupt regime like the U.S. Defense Department and feel good about yourself, right? So he needs a drug called, I'm a good guy. And if he can get the guy who's totally into philosophy to debate with him, then clearly that makes him feel better. Right, so... So then... Um, would that would that have been the case with this entire plan then? Or, I mean, because it was my intention all along to talk to every one of them to have this conversation with every one of them. Okay, and, and that, that may be a good or bad idea, I'm not sure, but 
I will tell you this for sure, that if you didn't go in knowing that your brother is really corrupt and is not going to change, right, then it was not your motive. Okay, yeah. Like, Anytime yeah. you come out of an interaction feeling like crap, then you're serving the, the needs of somebody else's and, and bad needs of theirs. Right? I know that, that conversations that I have with people, you know, they, they find those conversations tough, but I don't think anyone has ever said to me, man, after I hung up from you, I just felt so depressed. <laughs> but, but, I mean, uh, no, I mean, they say, you know, it was really tough, but, you know, generally it's an energetic conversation and, and so on, and there's possibilities that open up, and, it's, you know, it's, sometimes it's a little bit like cocaine to the brain, but it doesn't leave people like but any time that you come out of an interaction feeling emptied out or or, or uh, enervated or depressed or, or whatever right it's because you're just there you you just got fed on like a vampire okay that's i guess i guess i could see that i mean with two of my other brothers i definitely went in with no expectation whatsoever and got exactly what I expected, nothing. Um, and that wasn't anywhere near as uh, problematic for me as uh, the conversation I had with Chris. And uh, so. uh, in terms of the corruptometer, uh, where would you put Chris relative to your other brothers? Well, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> You, you asked that question because I've been kind of thinking about that over the last couple of weeks, and and especially after talking to Chris, I really can't see a whole lot of difference between any one of them. There's just stylistic differences. One brother who's uh, and, the, and this is the one that I had the. I had absolutely no illusions about uh, he he'll demand that you do what he wants you to do just because he's him you know right so can easily get entitled right yeah he he does this not just with uh, me but also with his own wife and kids it's really does this can, does he know how like how, how does he achieve this does he have a give me his email website anything well, actually, it's very easy for him because his wife has progressive MS. Oh. Suddenly I felt the wind of the joke go out a little bit of sales. Uh, okay, sorry, go on. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. But it's, uh, it really wasn't funny for me. So, But anyway, um, so, I mean, with him, I kind of knew what to expect. I was just going to tell him flat out exactly what was going on and and why he shouldn't be concerned about it and that was that and the same with with uh, the next younger brother um, they um, the two of them are kind of in the same camp with each other but I thought you know Chris has a pretty sophisticated intellect and I, I thought that that might be a sign that he was capable more, but well, but if he has a pretty sophisticated intellect, but he has um, found a way to positively work for the army, 
But that tells you the role of his intellect, right? Right, exactly. I mean, it's just become a kind of um, servile uh, tool for his desire for power. Yeah, just this is this is the tool that he uses. He uses his intelligence to to support mythology, right? And, and this kind of predatory mythology, like patriotism and militarism, right? So, so the question yeah. is that I mean, if 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 we sort of go back to the 1938 Germany thing, if your brother was in the Nazi Party, uh, would you have had a conversation with him? Uh, repeat that. It got garbled. If your brother was in the Nazi Party in 1938 Germany. Would you have had a conversation with him? Oh, well, oh, well, that's an interesting way to put that. Because you got this rule, like, you, you got this rule, like, I've got to have this, this talk with everyone, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> right? This no unchosen positive obligation thing, maybe, uh, maybe you feel it's sort of in the platonic room, you know, playing on its own or something, right? <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know why you would have to have this conversation. I don't know why, why that's a mission for you, right? Or why that's a standard. Well, I, I just thought that uh, there's no better there's no better teacher than direct experience, right? Yes, there is a better teacher than direct experience. We call it philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, please, what's the point of this conversation for a year and a half if you have to keep beating your head against the wall? Yeah, you're right. You're right. The so what you're saying is that... It's, it's all about prevention, not cure, right? Sure, sure. I agree with that. So, so in other words, um, well, I mean, we're kind of back in the same square. Then it, uh, I should have been able to look at uh, the example of any one of my other brothers, or even uh, my parents, and know that I wasn't going to get anywhere with him. Well, you you don't need the example. You just need the theory. I mean, you could only have had one brother. You could have had you some. Right, I mean, if I'd said to you, uh, uh, I don't know, or if someone had said to you, hey, uh, Greg, uh, this, uh, this friend of mine, uh, he works for the Defense Department, uh, would you like to talk to him about the virtues of anarchism and pacifism? What would you have said? <laughs> if, th if that's uh, the only thing you knew about the guy. Yeah, uh, that would have been uh, kind of crazy. Yeah, we say, thanks, but no thanks, right? I'm also not going to go to the policeman's ball and uh, give a big lecture about, uh, you know, the uh, corrupt cats in blue, right? I mean, because, you know, there's no point. I forgot about the colleagues. Yeah, I guess that's true. So, so if you look at I all of the immense, sorry, if you look at all of the immense knowledge you have about your brother and you just boil it down to that salient fact that he works for the military... <laughs> Right? That's, that's the only and thing. loves it. And loves it, right? And has no doubts about it. And feels that he's doing the perfectly most wonderful protect my children from the evil terrorists, uh, that he is the best guy in the world. With just that little piece of information about a perfect stranger, you'd have said, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Because you know 
that it would just be masochistic to do it. Yeah, you're right. And so when you say experience is the best teacher, I'd say, no, just uh, you know everything you need to know to avoid this conversation. So I really didn't actually have to have the conversation with anybody. Well, I mean, you can choose to, right? But what you're then saying is that there's, there's, there's no way that I can use my values or philosophy or knowledge of, of the world or, or of these individuals to, to determine the outcome ahead of time. Right? It means that you have to learn everything ex post facto in this regard, right? But what I'm saying is that with very, very, with, with one-tenth of one millionth of one percent of the knowledge that you have about your brothers, uh, or we're just talking about this guy, you know exactly how the conversation's going to go. Yeah. Yep, that's true. That's true. I mean, uh, there's no... <laughs> what did I expect him to say? Yeah, and of course, you, you had so much knowledge, right? And you, you, you mean the, if you couldn't know how this conversation was going to go, then knowledge about humanity is impossible. So in a way, all along, I've just been sort of um, using these as a way to beat up on myself. No, I know. You, you, you've, got to, uh, you've got to remember the other people's needs here, right? What's, what, what is the case is that you've been programmed to be there to serve the needs of other people. And it's hard to break that programming, right? To then proactively intervene philosophy between the knee-jerk response that most of us have to serve the needs of others. Mm -hmm. Other people needed you to justify their existence. And the more you got into philosophy, the more tasty a justification morsel you became for them. Well, that's interesting. Sure. <laughs> the prettier a girl gets, yeah. the more the bro wants to date her. Oh, whatever. You know what I mean, right? But, uh, you know, the more wise you become, the more, pe the more value you have as a tasty morsel of self-justification for people. That, that definitely explains, uh, that, that explains a lot with my relationship with uh, Tom, sure. the, brother, the brother just next to me. And the higher the stakes um, become of you rejecting them. The, my brother never went through any agony in his relationship with me. He was perfectly composed and, and self-justified and so on. But the true agony that he went through, went through after he realized that I was hot in pursuit of wisdom, that I'd gone to therapy, that I was really learning about how to bring philosophy and wisdom to bear in my life. And I stone-rejected him. He went nuts. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's kind of how it's been with because with with Tom we we literally didn't even look at each other from about the age that oh, 14 to the time that just after he graduated college and slowly but surely um, he had been kind of you know palling up with me and doing things with me and talking to me a lot and stuff like that. But what I noticed was that he he's kind of a chameleon. He would hang out with me and be one person with me. And then when he was at home with his family, was a completely different guy. Good job. <laughs> like somebody I didn't even recognize. Right, right. 
And and that's when I kind of realized that, uh, at least with him, that, I mean, he was kind of playing a game. You know, that uh, for him, I was kind of uh, just a, a, a chance to... Um, um, pretend he was somebody he wasn't. Right? Right. But I never got that sense with Chris. I don't know why. Well, I don't know. Uh, do you mind if I just... Um, uh, sorry to, to, to be abrupt. I just wanted to ask if anybody else had... Um, uh, had questions or comments uh, on this or, or other topics? If, if, if they don't, we can certainly continue, but I just wanted to, to see if anybody else had stuff. Uh, if you want to type it into the chat window. Um, uh, hi, yes. Uh, I have uh, somebody who says, I might, and they're just flashing me a little bit of leg. <laughs> I've, I've had plenty enough to think about, too, so I can just okay, I'll, I'll go off and listen for a while. If nobody else says anything. Uh, somebody has asked. Ah, okay, he says. Yes, Stephen, if you'd like to, go ahead. Uh, we can we can make this the brother show. Oh, brother, where art thou? Hello. He's my brother. Yes, go ahead. Um, hey, Seth. Uh, I had a brother who was uh, into atheism or was an atheist for a few months, and then he just dropped it, and it really got me scared. <laughs> had a brother. Is he gone? Uh, gone? No, no, he's he's still alive. Oh, yeah, okay. and Rod, Rod pointed out it's the girl. Oh, I say. I thought oh, you yeah. had a brother, but then he was, you know, abducted by aliens. Okay, so he uh, just tell me a little bit about what was going on for him when he took this dip into. Um, and I assume when you say atheism here, what you mean is a rejection of religion, not necessarily a philosophically founded kind of rationalism. I think that may have been the problem, is that it wasn't as philosophically founded as, I suppose, um, I guess, the atheism that we talk about here. Right, it's but, like, um, like saying that when somebody gets a letter from the IRS that they're being audited, in that moment everyone's an anarchist, right? But, but that's not quite the same as being philosophical about it. Right, right. right. Um, I don't know, he just... He said it like a couple months ago, and, and he, I just found out about it the other night when I was talking to him about, I guess, uh, anarchy in general. But um, what kind of bugged me was that he, A, that he didn't tell me, and B, that I guess I thought that he would be a little bit more reasonable than that, I suppose. Reasonable than what? Than, I guess, finding God again. It seems like once you're an atheist, it doesn't seem like you should be able to go back. That doesn't make sense. You mean it's like cheating? <laughs> right, it's like, it's like saying I'm gay and then getting married, right? Like it's like cheating? Yeah, something like that, something like that. Well, sure, but I mean, you could imagine a Catholic saying, you know, man, God, I really want to masturbate, so I'm not going to be a Catholic for a couple of months until I, you know, de-blue myself or something, right? So, I mean, there's lots of reasons why people might get uh, hostile towards religion for a particular, that have nothing to do with rationality, right? Somebody may, may read about 
the um, the um, you know the fact that thousands of, of clergy uh, in the Catholic Church have been implicated in child abuse and say, well, that's it. You know, I'm not going to church anymore. I don't believe in God and blah blah blah. And of course, a lot of Jews went through this right in in the post Holocaust period, where they say, you know, could we be the chosen people for something other than Nazi furnaces? Because you know, if we're supposed to be all chosen of God. Why is it that God is getting us killed? And there was this huge crisis of faith, and that had a lot to do with the secularization of the Jewish culture, right? Where they became more of a race and a culture than a religion. But that's right. not because they awoke to any kind of rationality, right? They just recoiled from a particular kind of evidence, if that makes sense. Right, and I think I think the case would be here that we live in a very religious town, and the, generally the religious type people aren't very deep. So I think he was rejecting that more than actually working from first principles. Right, but. right. And and now, unfortunately, though, what's going to happen, if I can put on my prognostication hat for just a moment, what's going to happen <laughs> is he is going to put forward the attitude to you that atheism is just the kind of immature phase that people go through. Right, so when you say, I'm an atheist, he's going to pat you on the head and say, ah, yes, I remember going through that immature phase, but I've outgrown all of that now, and it's going to be kind of humiliating to talk to him about your, your philosophy, right, or philosophy as a whole. And that's definitely been the case with anarchy. He thinks I just don't like authority, as he says. Right, but and I, I would be cautious about, sorry, I would be cautious about using the term anarchy with people. Uh, because it comes so heavily laden with connotation, I would uh, recommend, and it's, it's true, I mean, it's not manipulation, I would recommend saying that I'm very interested in philosophy, not I'm an anarchist, because that's talking about a conclusion rather than a process, and it's the process that is all important. Right. Right, people, scientists don't say I'm an Einsteinian, right? They say I'm a scientist. Right. Similarly, we don't want to say I'm an anarchist or I'm an atheist, but I'm, I'm a philosopher. I'm interested in philosophy. Focus on the approach, not the conclusions, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, because when you, when you present conclusions to people that are freaky, they assume that you've jumped straight to the conclusion, which is what they do in terms of being religious or, or being into patriotism or whatever, that you've just jumped to a conclusion and that's made you dogmatic. But the beauty of, of philosophy is that it can't be overturned, right? Um, you, you, you just can't, right? I mean, you, you can reject thought and rationality, but you can't do that by, and, and still... Rationally. Mouth, right? Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> right. so, so people can sort of say, oh, anarchism, well, that's, that's crazy. That's, you know, that's Molotov throwing cocktail people who've got dreadlocks and shouldn't and so on, right? But if you say, well, I, I just love philosophy, which is really what we're about, right? This is a philosophical show. It's not fundamentally about anarchism or God or family or any of that. It's just about... Uh, the love of wisdom and the truth. And uh, that may be something... Like, people, people will say, oh yes, uh, I remember being a rebel and I remember out, uh, went through that phase, but then I outgrew it and so on. But nobody wants to say, well, I outgrew the love of wisdom, right? <laughs> I mean, sort of fundamentally, right. people don't want to... I outgrew my, my weird addiction to determining truth from falsehood, you know, <laughs> and now I just make it <laughs> as I go along, right? I mean, nobody wants to take that approach. So uh, that, that, and it's more, it's more accurate to say that you're into philosophy than you're an anarchist, if that makes sense. It, that definitely makes sense. I, I suppose, like, it, the, the thing that really shook me about it in a lot of ways is the fact that, like, I don't know, I got this, I got this feeling that maybe getting into, I guess, the truth in general is... Um, 
something that you have an inertia, like that has an inertia about it, and then like at some point, you know, like if you don't make any actions on it, you just, I don't know, lose it or something like that. I don't think that's if that case. makes any sense. No, I, I totally understand what you mean. Like, is, is the truth like going to the gym, right? Like, you have to keep going to the gym, or what's the point, right? In a sense, right? You just hurt yourself and then get flaccid again. Um, but that's not the way that I've experienced it. And, I, you know, other people can certainly say their own experience, but this seems to be quite common. Uh, the truth is more like you take a ginger... Uh, you take a gingerly step from the top of a mountain, thinking that maybe you'll think about climbing, and then you take another step because it seems kind of cool, and then another step because it's like, wow, that's interesting. I'm really feel-. and then suddenly it's like, ah, right, because you free fall. Uh, what happens is the truth turns into a bobsled that you're just trying to hang on to, right? I mean, so uh, if you find a way to control that process, y'all let me know because. <laughs> I've not been able to find a way to do it, right? Um, and I don't know people who have, people who right? Have. The truth is so innate to our experience, right? Because we have a very empirical uh, sense that is constantly reinforced through our interactions with reality and rationality. So, you know, we think that it's an escalator, but it turns into like a bobsled run. That we're just kind of holding on, trying not to get our brains dashed out, if that sort of makes any sense. So uh, I would say that at the beginning, it might feel a little bit like you're pushing a rock up a hill. But after that, uh, you're just kind of hanging on to this thing going down a hill, if that makes sense. You're riding the rock back down. Yeah, or yeah. Down you're, the other you're, you're side, I suppose. These, you know, you turn into one of these cartoon characters who runs on top of the rock that's rolling down the hill. It's like, must keep running or I'm going to get crushed. Now, it does get a little bit easier after a while, but uh, it definitely is, uh, uh, you know, a kaleidoscopic multimedia, you know, brain on LSD kind of experience for a while there after the inertia uh, gets going, and then it's just a matter of managing it as it goes along, right? Uh, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. What, how do you think I should approach it, I suppose, talking about that type of stuff with my brother at this point? Well, my question is, why do you want to talk about it with your brother? I don't know if I really do, but it, it comes up. And, I mean, I don't know. We don't, we don't talk a whole lot anymore. I'm, I'm still living at home, if, if I guess. Yeah, no, I know. Well, what I, w- I mean, if, you, if it does come up, well, you, you can bite your tongue, but that's, that's mighty hard to do, even for an ancient geezer like me who's 40. So for you, it's going to be really hard, I would imagine. But um, what I would say is uh, something like this. I'd say, dude! Okay, I won't insult your intelligence by pretending to be a teenager. But I would say, um, man, I would say, look, we can have these discussions if you like, right? I, I love philosophy. I love... Uh, debate. I love trying to figure out the truth. So we can have these conversations if you like. But, oh brother of mine, what we do need is a methodology that we can use to figure out whether we're making any progress, right? Like if your brother sits there and says, I want to play a game of basketball, right? And then he pulls out a hunting rifle. You have every right to say, I'm a little confused, right? This isn't, you know, the Comptons, right? But you have, you have to have some rules with the games that you're playing with people. And if you're going to play a game with people called the pursuit of knowledge, then you have to have some rules about what constitutes knowledge, right? Otherwise, you're not doing anything, right? You just, you, you, you know, one of you is playing chess, and the other one of you is playing shuffleboard. You're not actually interacting at all, right? So, so you, you can say to him, look, I have no problem with us pursuing knowledge in this way. I mean, it's a, something I dearly love to do. You might not want to use the phrase dearly. Um, that it's okay if you have a British accent, but otherwise everyone's just going to think you're really fruity. 
uh, I mean, I have a British accent. I already think I'm pretty fruity. So um, something that, that's great, but we have to have a methodology, right? So if we're going to discuss these issues, you can't pull the faith cards, you can't pull the patriotism card, because those things are not about knowledge. They're just about mere prejudice, right? And, or whatever, you know. So you can have these debates with your brother, but if you don't have a methodology that you both agree on, it's just going to be fruitless and pointless. And you really, really, really want to stay away from pointless debates because what it does is it turns the love of wisdom into masochism, right? So you have to preserve your joy of the pursuit of truth. And, and you, you will always poison that, that desire if you debate with people who don't believe in rationality or evidence or whatever, right? Or who just make up answers or who are defensive or manipulative or they use the truth as a way of putting you down or whatever, right? But, but you'll get this in, in the book on truth. Um, but, but just have a methodology. If you don't have a methodology, you know, it's like funny game. The, the only way to win is not to play, right? Right. Right. <sighs> well, you know, I really, I really appreciate that. I just, just kind of came as a shock to me. That's all the whole thing. Well, uh, do do keep us uh, surprised of how it goes. But um, I, I guess you heard the conversation with um, with Greg. Just, just just you know you you know all there is to know about your brother. You know whether he's capable of being rational. You know all of this. You just need to not beat your head against the wall if that's the case. And if you do feel deep deep down in your gut that there's the possibility of a productive pursuit of wisdom relationship with your brother then approach it delicately and sensitively as you can but you know the truth about whether this is going to work or not right right well thanks for thanks for your help oh anytime listen keep us posted with uh, with how it goes all right i will thanks man did somebody say they were impressed with me did i read that with imac But Steph, masoch oh, masochism, what if his brother is imposing the desire on him? Yeah, for sure, for sure, that is the case, right? I mean, if, if that is, um, uh, this is just for the guy who was just on, that, yeah, I mean, you, the people who go down this irrational road always want to suck rationalists in to, to pretend that it's a debate, right? So somebody who's religious is, always, is going to want to debate the existence of God for the rationalists just so they can pretend that they're being rational. Right, but just don't get engaged in that kind of don't support, don't lend your sanction, right? That's the Randian thing, right? Don't lend your sanction to the corruption. So. Boot camp for Windows. No, that's not me. Okay. <laughs> All right, does anyone else have any questions, comments, issues, problems? We have a few more minutes. Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? Bueller? <laughs> Well, well, yes. Oh, is somebody coming in? Or somebody just teasing? Chewy wants to talk. What you meant when you said, as you develop philosophically, you become a more juicy self-justification for others. Oh, did he just have... Oh, just have my question answered. Yes, sir. Um, well, if you back up, the, what I'd like to say is... <laughs> you know, that's going to go in the next mixtape of Free Main Radio. <laughs> the philosophical walrus. <laughs> um, Yo, Steph, I got I one for you. whale as well. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just kind of curious. Uh, 
This is Bo, by the way. So we was talking about uh, your sales background. I just want to know, how long were you doing sales before you actually started doing well? How uh, Well, um, uh, I started doing sales really just uh, as, because I was the chief technical officer, and so I had the, a good, I've always had a good ability to explain technical stuff to a non-technical audience. Philosophy, I guess, was part of that as well. So when we would have a, uh, a sales presentation, I would go in and I would do the, uh, the presentation and answer questions, and then I began talking at conferences and so on a little bit. And um, then I began to move more into a commission-based structure in the last job I had before the last job I had. So I moved into it pretty gracefully because I already had a good deal of experience talking with clients and, and establishing a value proposition for them. But uh, sales, of course, is, is really just about... Um, establishing that if someone gets you a buck, you'll give them two bucks, right? I mean, th th that's that's really there's a lot of technical stuff or economic stuff involved in in really good sales, right? So hmm. if you're selling an IBM system, a mainframe or something to some bank, some bank, then you say, okay, well, you know, like I was many years ago, I was involved in a very big presentation to to Unisys for a, a check um, clearing system that would. Uh, interpret people's handwriting and process checks and so on, right? And this was a ten, it was a $10 million system, and I was only involved at a low level, so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't at the top of it anyway. And so basically what we did was we did an analysis of how much labor they were spending processing checks manually, right? And, and we said, okay, well, we can reduce it from this many hours to this many hours. The system costs $10 million, so it'll pay for itself in 18 months or whatever, right? So a lot mm -hmm. of sales is around, it's right. not around sort of that, you know, quasi-Herb Talek kind of charisma, uh, I mean, there's certainly some aspect of that, but mostly it's just around being, you know, patient, taking a lot of rejection, and establishing a value proposition. It's not about personally winning people over with the force of your personality. That doesn't tend to produce very long-term success in terms of sales, but it's saying, you know, uh, if you give me $100,000 now, I'll give you $100,000 back in a year, and then you'll make $100,000 every year after mm -hmm. that, and then actually delivering on that. That's how you build success as a salesperson, then you have to really want your clients to do well. You have to um, uh, put a, a methodology in place that they can use to assess the value of what you're selling them and all these other kinds of things. But there's a lot of technicalities around sales in terms of establishing value for other people that, sorry? And you have to believe in what you're selling and you have to have, right? so if you, if you can find a company whose product you really believe in or, or found a company whose product you really believe in, um, and, and you can also do stuff to reduce risk, right? So when I was uh, working at the company that I co-founded with my brother, um, you know, there was the risk, uh, like if you didn't report to the government about all of your environmental stuff, you faced risks of fines of up to, you know, like millions and millions of dollars. Uh, whereas if you had our software that was not totally eliminated, but at least your fines would be far lower because you would have a good methodology in place and so on. So mm -hmm. you just have to find a credible value proposition, uh, work to, to establish it, and then, you know, if you're in a startup, you, you make sure that you put the processes in place to track, right? So you say, we're going to save you X amount of dollars. And you put the processes in place to track it uh, so that when, and then you use that person for reference, right? So you say, well, I'll give you 150% back over two years. And then you have that person as a reference. And then when your next client calls, they say, oh, yes, they did deliver that and so on, right? So it's just slow mm -hmm. but steady as far as that goes. But there's no huge trick to sales as far as that goes. You just have to be really, really obsessed and, and focused on creating value that's measurable and tangible to All clients right. and uh, things sort of move themselves. Yeah, okay. No, I was more or less just asking because, you know, when I brought that up on the boards, I was just like, woo, panic and anxiety, sales, Jesus Christ. Come on. But that comes out <laughs> of it, right? 
that, well, comes that, is, a, I mean, yeah. that comes out of a desire. Like if somebody says to me, Steph, you should be a dentist, I don't feel any anxiety, right? Because I don't want to be a dentist, right? So the reason you feel anxiety is because you think that that might be a great thing for you, and just based on my interactions with you, I think it would be as well, right? Hmm. Right, yeah, it's just trying to make that leap, you know. It's like, wow, I'm now doing the accounting thing and business stuff, and it's steady and slow, but at least nothing's wrong, but... It's just that sense that anything I do doesn't matter. I'm not going to get paid anymore. So it's just, I, I don't know. That's why I was like, when I hit, when you hit the sales button, I was like, Wah. didn't know how to really respond. Well, you can, of course, what you can do, which is not a bad thing to do at all, is uh, in lots of larger companies will have sales training programs, right? Some of the best salespeople in the world come out of the IBM or the Dell sales training programs or the Microsoft ones, so you can always look into that where you will get paid to learn, right? So, and those skills will serve you very well for the rest of your life if that's something of interest to you. That's definitely a thought. Well, cool. Just wanted to get your opinion on that there, Steph. Sure, no problem. Uh, and uh, how's everything else going? Um, still dealing with 836, uh, but I did take your advice to stop pursuing uh, my crack addiction. Right. <laughs> so right. <laughs> so uh, that part is at least kind of going by, but in the process of the last two weeks, I've lost three women that were just friends because of this whole thing. So. Well, and you know that that's an effect of the conversation that you're in, right? I mean, there's a reason yeah. it's clustering all around this now, right? That, that there's a crack in the false self thing, which was pretty solid when we first met. And because of that, some vulnerability is coming out, some authenticity is coming out. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that these women have left your orbit, right? Because clearly, as you become more real and more authentic and more vulnerable, if they head for the hills, you know, it's, uh, it definitely is not your loss, right? Well, yeah, but at some point you're just like, ah, oh, it's kind of one of those feelings where it's just like, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's just a freak out feeling of, you know, Jesus Christ, what the hell just happened? I, I had all these people around me, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, great, it's, I'm back to where I was, so. Right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah, well, oh, as I mentioned God. before, there's this, there's this uh, free fall aspect of, of, of uh, individuation or becoming more authentic about who you are. Uh, that, uh, it, you know, when you change your, your perspective on yourself or on the world, and particularly when you begin to approach something that's more real and honest, um, you know, people, will, people will, will leave. But that's good, right? I mean, I know that sucks in a way, but it's good because you can't get to the next level without leaving this level behind, right? Yeah, it's just trying to make the transition between the two, which is a real bitch, I tell you. <laughs> oh, it creates a lot of anxiety, right? And you think, oh, my God, this is great. So I now have some more of the truth, but I'm a social leper, right? But that's only with the people. I mean, you, would, you couldn't have the same people around when you weren't being honest about who you were. Now that you are being much more honest, and again, massive, uh, massive uh, props to you uh, in this way. But uh, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Like if you were, you know, a sort of player before and you're not so much now... It wouldn't make any sense for you to be appealing to the same kinds of people, right? It's true, but it's just, I don't know, just some aspects of that come out any time I have an interaction, and it's just like, oh, hold on, i got to pull the brakes on. <laughs> hold on. I didn't mean it in this manner, but I had to, and it's just like, ah, uh, it's just so hard to break the cycle of just continuously being, you know, you know, it's just... I don't know, it's trying to deal with just perceptions, I think, of the different people I have to interact with, which is really tough, which is what you're kind of dealing with when I when you gave that podcast. So, 
I'm still trying to deal with that in a manner that's not so, you know, I don't know. It's just trying to deal with it, I guess. That's all. Right. I mean, and, uh, you, you could look at it analogously in this way, right? So if you have a very simple set of language skills uh, and you have a bunch of friends who have that kind of simple set of language skills, you know, CJ and run, C spot, jump or whatever, right? And you say, okay, well, I'm now going to expand my vocabulary. I'm going to start reading lots of books. And then this is an analogy. I know this is not the case with you, a guy, but so I'm now going to start using bigger words, bigger concepts, and so on, right? Well, people either got to keep up or they're going to go away, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably a lot of what's happening, uh, just because it seems that the nature of the relationships that I was deriving were ones based that weren't really based on any form of logic, but more or less just like, I don't know, it's, it's a very basic need. Right, right. So, I don't know, it's tough. I mean, it's a tough transition from what I was doing and getting to now where I'm kind of in that dip in the middle. So, Sure, <laughs> I, I absolutely guarantee you that this will save your life in the future. And uh, I know it looks, it can look like a real mirage from here. It's like, oh yeah, so this is Guy's death saying, hey, just over the next mountain, it's like, it's like the happy land or whatever. But uh, it, it, it is the case that uh, as you let these kinds of people go out of your life uh, and continue to work on yourself, that better people will inevitably come along. All right. Well, here's one other little thing. So, okay, for example, the one thread I was on on the boards, giving advice to Heretic about trying to go ahead and find libertarian women and then kind of getting busted because I was using you know, the same techniques I was using back then to help this guy, you know, my cognito, I was just kind of like, damn, he's right, I'm in, an infl- I'm in a recessive loop back there because I just went right back into what I was thinking before rather than what I'm trying to do now. Yeah, gro- growth is not a steamship, it's a pendulum, right? So it's a pendulum that moves. If you think it's sort of a pendulum going along a clothesline, it still swings back and forth a lot, right? But there's progress nonetheless. You'll never swing back to the way you were, and every time you swing forward, you'll get further ahead, right? Yeah. No, I do. Well, that's pretty much it. I just want to chime in on that and ask your opinion. So. Sure, sure. But I'm well, still uh, dealing with that. That's, a, that's still a lot of info. It, so. Yeah, it, it, look, that was, I was fairly aware. Actually, I was completely aware. Um, when I did the podcast, that this was going to be a bit of a, um, a bit of an A-bomb, right? So uh, this, of course, is, 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 a, is a huge amount to swallow, and it's, uh, it's all very uh, complex. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, just huge, huge admiration for what it's worth uh, for you uh, sticking through that. Uh, it was a very, very challenging podcast that probably fewer than one in a hundred people would have been able to swallow. So uh, good for you. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't see what's the big deal about it, is kind of being honest, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, All right, man. you've seen the board. Okay, well, thanks very much. I really yeah, appreciate exactly. it. We've had uh, uh, Chewbacca wanted to know, uh, Steph, can you explain briefly what you meant when you said, as you developed philosophically and became more, uh, sorry, you became more juicy for self-justification by others. Um, unfortunately, I can't because you used the word briefly. So I just don't really see how that's going to be possible, but I will do it in the way that is best. So, um, root of the word philosophy is from the Greek philos, uh, love of wisdom. No, just kidding. So, look, it's it's like this, right? If uh, if you if you win the lottery, right, then there's going to be lots of people who are going to become your friends, right, because they want you to give them money, right? If you become a famous rap star, uh, as I never was in my twenties. 
then you're going to get a good old MC Hammer posse of 100 people who want to be your best friends and smoke your Snoop Dogg drugs and hang around with your uh, hoes and so on. Right? So you're going to be lots of people who are going to want to be your friends. So the more wealthy you become, the more you attract parasites. And the same thing is true, of course, as you develop knowledge and wisdom. Um, if people begin to respect your capacity for wisdom and truth, then they are going to want to use you to justify themselves, right? So if you can imagine an island uh, full of vampires, right, the first guy who washes up who's got some real blood in his veins is going to attract his fair share of pointy-toothed friends. And the same thing is true as you develop a, the... Um, uh, uh, it's sort of like, it, Let me give you another example, right? So, uh, you know, in those teen movies, they have this girl the sort of Bailey Quarters for those who are not young. <laughs> they have this girl who's like, I'm not pretty because I wear glasses and my hair's up, right? And then, you know, at some point she goes through this ugly ducting to a swan thing where, you know, the dreamy music plays and she takes off her glasses and she shakes down her hair and it's like, whoa, foxy, right? Or whatever. And um, if there was a British rap star, but she would sound pretty close to that. But, um, uh, and so what happens is now she's a hottie, right? And as a hottie, she's going to start having lots of guys want to go out with her, right? So as you increase in value, you increase in um, desirability, of course, for other people. And lost and empty people are really going to want to feed on your wisdom and on your knowing. So you, you absolutely want to have the wise man approve of you rather than the corrupt man, right? Adolf Hitler saying, I think he's a great guy, is not going to do you quite as much good from a sort of emotional satisfaction standpoint. If you can get Socrates to say, he's a great guy, that's a whole lot different, right? So as you increase in wisdom, people will want you to justify their own existence more, and that can be a dangerous situation. But Steph, if you have real knowledge, aren't you going to clearly not validate anyone else's false beliefs? Well, but see, there's the intellectual knowledge and then there's the emotional knowledge, as we were talking about with Greg. If you have intellectual knowledge, but you don't bring your whole sort of instinctual, philosophical, emotional apparatus to bear on a situation, then you're going to end up being exploited by other people, right? So uh, if you have real knowledge and you have full knowledge, right, full knowledge, there's a really dangerous time in philosophy, right? And it's the time... Like, you know, when, uh, when uh, animals are, are young, you think of sort of, I don't know, baby gazelle, right? There's a, a time of great danger, right? I mean, when they're in their mother's womb, so to speak, they're relatively safe, right? But then when they get born, uh, then they're first, they're protected by the herd, right? The herd is always hanging around, making sure they can get up and learn how to walk or whatever. And then, but then there's a very dangerous time, right? When they're no longer protected by the herd, but they're not quite full grown, that's the kind of time that the predators are going to really want to grab them, right? And so as you develop in knowledge and wisdom, there's a time where you have knowledge and wisdom, but what you don't have is the emotional strength that uh, people will sense, right? So if people know that you are going to mess them up, not by attacking them, but just by speaking the truth, right? And I get these attacks uh, all the time, right? Uh, all the time from various angles, and people will constantly try and uh, justify themselves or, you know, whatever, right? And, you know, the recent one being, of course, that, uh, and again, no disrespect to the women involved, but the recent one being this, uh, oh, Steph, you should take the high road, you should never let, you know, lower yourself to other people's levels and so on. Right? There's just other people who want me to justify their own um, particular approaches, right? They want, they want to manage their anxiety by 
getting me to change my behavior. And uh, so there's a, a time period when you have to be quite strong uh, and not be in conversation with people because you're not quite ready for it yet. And um, so uh, you have to um, uh, have the resolution to stare people in the eye and say, well, look, uh, what you're doing is completely wrong and corrupt. And uh, I, I actually nothing, I will have nothing to do with, with you uh, in any way, shape, or form because we are complete and total enemies. Right? If, if you are dealing with a, a relative or you know, your brother or whatever who is you know, a mystic or religious or a statist or you know, supports the use of violence or, or corruption and inflicts it upon his children, the reality is that you're enemies, right? I mean, no matter how zen we might want to get and how, you know, kumbaya, one big hug, gaya, all that kind of stuff, there are people who fight for the truth who are relatively few in number and most of them do it quite badly. And there are people who fight against the truth, which is the vast majority of people who do it very well, right? So um, we have to be uh, very careful uh, about this, and we have to develop our strength. Because the great thing, of course, is that once you have that, um, once you really have that capacity to be strong with people, they actually won't try to feed off you, right? Because they're very sensitive to whether or not you will be there to serve them or not. And if they know that they're going to experience great pain at your hands because you'll tell them the truth in a blunt and unapologetic manner, they'll leave you alone. But there's that time period where you have the wisdom that, that, that will give them the approval they need, but you don't necessarily have the boundary uh, skills and emotional skills to be honest, perfectly honest and frank with them. That's when they're going to prey on you, and that's, uh, that's a dangerous time. All right. Did we have any other questions eh? Hello. Hello. Hi, this is Rob. Hi. What's going on? <laughs> you know um, the guy who said we don't want to use the name, right? Nope. No, okay, good. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I feel that we've got good boundaries there. All right. Um, I was talking to, or I posted on the board, or on the talk or whatever, but I was, yesterday when I went down to uh, drop my brother off at my mom's house, for their little, uh, they had a family vacation or whatever, um, and I dropped him off at the vacation house, and my mom had t swore to me before I took him down there that her girlfriend wouldn't be there, and I drove off, and her girlfriend drove up, and so I called yesterday and had my final, that's it, with my mom. Wow. And how are you feeling? I'm happy. <laughs> I'm I mean, glad. I really am glad. Uh, what, what was it like to make that call? I mean, it was, what were the emotions? And well, I was just like, I was kind of mad that I saw that lady drive up, and I was just like, and the first thing I did was pull out my phone. I was like, okay, I saw her drive up. You're gonna lie to me about this kind of stuff. I'm not gonna talk to you anymore. And she's like, well, I don't know. I was just, I thought I was just protecting you, or whatever. And I was like, all right, whatever. I'm just don't talk to me anymore. If now, I want to talk to you, I'll call you. It, sorry, can you tell me why it is that you were surprised that your mom lied to you about that? I wasn't surprised. I just expected, I mean, at least for them to wait longer. But, um, <laughs> I guess you thought she'd be lied better, right? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I would have found out about it eventually, and this was, it was just my last straw. Well, you know, I, I certainly, uh, um, I think it's great what you're doing. You know, for what it's worth, uh, I know a little bit more uh, about, about the history here, and uh, I do think it's great uh, what it is that you're doing. I can absolutely guarantee you that it was not accidental that you found out the way that you did. 
because it would be a matter of such great ease for your mother to say to this woman, wait an hour until after my kid leaves and then come by or wait a day or whatever, right? So the fact that there was this overlap uh, is, uh, in, is not accidental, right? So your mom... Uh, definitely, uh, you, you're, again, your growing wisdom is causing anxiety for her, right? You're growing assertiveness, you're growing knowledge and all these great things that you're doing. It's causing anxiety for her, and she was uh, putting a test here, right, to figure out whether or not she was calling your bluff, right? So, oh, he says, well, I can't have this girlfriend over, and then um, she has you see her come over, and then, you know, that's, that, that's, that's the bluff she was calling, right? So, um, she... she, uh, she she got rid of you, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. That's, a, that's actually like the same thing my dad saw. He said he was like, because I called him and told him about it, and he goes, well, she meant for you to see that. Right. But I just wasn't, I don't know, I didn't want to believe that for the first few minutes. and then. No, of course, of course. <laughs> um, but my grandma had also told me that there was no way that girl was coming down. And I know she knew it was her house, so kind of called her and said bye to her too. So, wow, they're all gone. <laughs> wow, oh my God, that's. I mean, and and look, I mean, if you're feeling happy, I think that's great. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, as I mentioned to um, to the gentleman before, it can be a pendulum, right? So don't feel too bad if you end up swinging back into you know there's some other problem with your family, you slide back or whatever. That can absolutely happen. Don't. Don't feel too bad if it does, but uh, this is a great, uh, a great example, right, of this thing that that's people are so terrified of, right? Oh, I'm going to defoo or whatever. But when you do it, it's like, oh, I mean, it's like such a wonderful weight of, of senseless and degrading obligation has been lifted from your shoulders. And so your emotional experience of this uh, seems to me, it certainly was my experience, it's been the experience of other people that I've talked to with this area. There is just this sense of like, <sighs> you know, the future is opening future is up. Open. My life is my own, and, and it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Yeah, it definitely feels really good. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with regards to this? What was that? It kind of broke up a little bit. No problem. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in this regard? Uh, that was it, I guess. Wow. Well, well, fantastic. Uh, good, good for you. Listen, um, no. uh, send me your... Uh, you don't have a copy of On Truth yet, do you? Nope. Okay, you P, uh, this is my present to you for the DFU. Uh, just uh, send me your... Um, uh, PM me your address that you'll be at, sure. and I'll send you a free copy. Okay. All right. Well, congratulations. Keep us posted on how you're doing, and, and uh, uh, fantastic. Good for you, man. That's incredible. All right. All right. Take All care, right. man. You too. All right. Do we have any other questions, comments? Um, the growling in my stomach indicates that the philosopher must eat. Um, I look forward to uh, donations, uh, help to, uh, uh, except for those who've donated generously recently, Greg. Um, just uh, <laughs> throw a few bucks my way. Uh, it is a, uh, it's traditionally a bit lean in the summer. Uh, people have all these selfish requirements like vacations and food for themselves. But uh, if you have a couple of extra coins rolling around your, uh, your uh, change jar, if you could fire them off uh, uh, my way, I would really appreciate that. So uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining in this Sunday, the 19th of August, 2007. It's a great chat, great show. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, um, uh, for, for dropping by. And again, for your amazing, perfect, and beautiful uh, atomic 
honesty uh, that is Stop doing recording conversation. to help people uh, throughout, uh, throughout the world, I think. So I will talk to you all next week. Stop and recording conversation. FreeDomainRadio.com and pick up a copy of On Truth, The Tyranny of Illusion. And uh, I will talk to y'all soon. Bye. Stop recording conversation. No, it's a podcast. That's what he suggests. Yeah, see here, this now, this is supposed to be my recording thing, right? So what is it now? Here. See the current <laughs> call? It's all grayed out. So what does that mean?